continue our discussion from Bhagavad Gita and we come to thanks to uh, well Arjun's question we heard Arjun's question after three verses from Krishna that introduced the chapter and they, they caused some pause in, um, in Arjun who asks question a question now um, which gives uh, Krishna to the opportunity to um, speak in some detail, although in um, briefly uh, about his status as the personality of Godhead. So uh, these uh, next verses maybe uh, 5 through 14, hmm, are a kind of a, um, a summary of what we'll find in the middle six chapters of the Gita, the theology of the Gita. So as I said earlier, it's kind of a refreshing break in the action here um, in this early first six chapters of yoga psychology and the nature of the Atma and such boring topics. Hmm. They're actually exciting topics, but of course, from the from the deeply devotional perspective, they're they're not, as we as we've discussed. So, uh, from Arjun's question, reviewing briefly, then again, Ar- Krishna had spoken about the um, antiquity of the teaching, how old it was, which, as I said earlier, lent some credibility to it. it's been around for quite some time. It's not a new school of thought that has not um, endured the test of time. And so he wants to say this teaching about yoga that I'm speaking to you has has passed the test of time. It's been around for, well, since forever. Hmm. Which is good enough, but in the context of creating faith in what Krishna is speaking about in the heart of Arjuna, yoga, ultimately bhakti yoga, by this technique, so to speak, or uh, by speaking about its um, its um, ancient past and the lineage uh, through which which has been carefully handed down. He also caused some doubt and confusion um, in Arjuna, which gives rise to his, his question. It's fine that this is old and that's inspiring, but um, how is it that you spoke it to the sun god? Um, that's rather uh, different, given that, uh, for, on the one hand, typically gods teach men, men don't teach gods, and you're my friend and uh, a human amongst others, and um, you may be special and so forth, but that you, you're, you're a teacher of the gods, how can that be? And if that's so, how did you do it in, in in this body? You couldn't have done it in this body. This body was just born, not long ago, my friend. 
we're cousin brothers. So you know, I, I know all about you. <laughs> right? Since you were since we were very young, we're practically the same age. We've been together. So how am I to think that you were like with the sun god? Certainly couldn't have been in this body because this body was just born. And uh, so these are the kind of doubts that arise in Arjuna that he then voices and it initially then gives Krishna to speak about the nature of his omniscience and also his eternality. If he was like he appears to be, Arjuna's friend and so forth, even if he spoke to the sun god, which is divine, still, how would he remember it? So he, he, he are you saying that you're omniscient? It's basically um, what Arjuna's asking for some clarification on, and eternal. Um, so, um, We come to text five and Bhagavan speaks, Sri Bhagavan Vachu. Bahuni me vititani janmani tavarjuna. Tani aham veda sarvani natvam veta parantapa. Bhagavan said that Arjun, both of us have passed through many births. So it's already been a teaching earlier in the Gita that the soul doesn't die, right? So, reincarnation is obviously a, th- a uh, doctrine that Arjuna's familiar with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, the self is unborn. Krishna's already taught that to Arjuna. The self is unborn, but nonetheless takes birth. But, of course, it takes birth by, the, by a particular force. as the force of karma. Mm-hmm. And so when he says, both of us have passed through many births, he could have as well said, both of us are unborn. He's already taught that. But now there's a difference at the same time between the ordinary person's birth, who Arjuna is playing the role of, so to speak, or taking the place of for our benefit, and Krishna's birth, ordinary birth, compelled, driven, by the force of, of karma. So there are, as I said, uh, there are consequences for actions. Look around. Hmm? Observe, and we can see in the immediate that's the case, although we may seem to get away with some things. There is a sense in human society that that the truth will catch up to you. The long arm of the law. Hmm? Um, we have this underlying kind of intuitive sensibility as humans and um, we can argue on the basis of that kind of universal human sensibility that some people of course obviously dismiss altogether and 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 so on but often you know find that that, that they were wrong <laughs> and they're caught and apprehended or whatnot um, um, a strong, obviously, uh, even if everybody has this intuitive sense, doesn't make it right. But still, it's a little, a little compelling. Mm-hmm. Pretty much, it's universal human sensibility, and we would say that yes, it is true. And as I said earlier, I think the other day, 
if we accept that we have something called awareness, which is subtle, and for my in our terminology, part of the component, one of the components of the on on um, the um, what's it called, antakarana, subtle body, citta, buddhi, ahankar, and manas, right? Chitta. So, I'm aware of something. A sound goes off. I'm aware of it. And then buddhi, with buddhi I become aware of, it's the sound of a flute. I've been able to discriminate what is the sound. Hmm? Then with manas, the mind, I make a determination whether I like the sound or I don't like the sound. And all of these three features are going on within the context of an identity, ankar, hmm? what I think I am. So, this is backing up a little bit, kind of yoga, yoga psychology, discussion of the nature of the subtle body in a, in a very brief overview, how it functions, and so forth. Um, but, um, according to the Sankhya philosophy, then, the gross matter... There's gross matter and subtle matter, and the gross matter comes out of the subtle matter. So, so while there is chitta or awareness, um, almost often nowadays, of course, consciousness and awareness are thought to be the same thing. We would say that awareness, perception, awareness, let's say, is a feature of consciousness, an aspect of consciousness. It's something that um, obviously is not that well understood. It's something that modern science, for uh, that in its attempt to master things and understand them comprehensively, and use them for whatever purposes they may deem important, um, they've not done that well with consciousness. Hmm? They know that and identify it as a, as, a, as, a, as an awareness and, and, and a little further than that, a, a self-awareness, awareness of, of a sense of self. We give the example often that consciousness is like a light that has awareness in the form of shedding light on other things, making them known. Hmm? Um, um, but it's also luminous in and of itself. Hmm? So if it can shed light on other things, the implication is then it, then it, it unto, its, unto itself it's, it's luminous. And what is that self-luminosity about? In other words... That's just the tip of the iceberg, that consciousness has awareness. It sheds light on things. Hmm? What is it? Hmm? It, it, it? It That's a feature of itself. Hmm? So uh, we want to kind of, in, in Vedanta, we want to go to that uh, uh, deeper exploration of uh, uh, all that consciousness is... Uh, uh, constituted of what its possibilities are, and of course, when we come to uh, the school of bhakti, then it really uh, expands exponentially, hmm? right? Compared to, let's say, for example, the Advaitin idea of consciousness hmm? to be aware and restful and, and so forth, uh, to be Krishna conscious. Well, that, that's a that's a whole other thing, right? If you could, if you could, I see the sun in the sky. We were giving the example the other day of the two fellows living in the cave. One having seen the sun, trying to explain it to the other who had not. So it's one thing to see the sun in the sky as a great light. Look up and see it. 
even to try to explain that would be difficult to someone who had always lived in darkness. But what to speak of, as I extended that um, analogy the other day, to see all the effects of sun, all that sun in means rain, right? That's rain, that's sun coming down, right? That's the influence of sun that we hear on, uh, uh, on, the, on the rooftop, right? And the vegetation and so forth, and uh, life, the peace of mind that it gives. And so just a comparison, consciousness understood like Brahman, like the sun, like seeing the sun in the sky, that's a pretty big thing. It'll knock you out, especially if you've been living in a cave your whole life, right? Hmm? What to speak of then to look around and explore its ramifications. Hmm? Or another way to look at what goes on inside the sun, what it does is shed its light everywhere, and that's pretty extraordinary. Hmm? So consciousness makes the whole material world go around with all its variety and everything. Uh, just like the sun makes this world go around in many, many respects, right? That's why many ancient cultures would worship the sun. It makes sense. Hmm? Regard for the sun, gratitude for the sun, without which where would we be? See how lost we are to that even the sense of gratitude. Hmm? It was so prominent in uh, pre-scientific times and so forth. Hmm? I read a statement by Niels Bohr, famous uh, Nobel laureate, uh, scientist who said something to the effect uh, that um, ancient cultures with their religious stories and whatnot are uh, not looking at the world in the same way as science but what they're talking about is not untrue it's just something that can't be talked about with our scientific language tools methods and so forth there's more to it than what we can find out just by such um, investigation with the uh, instruments of our senses, mind, and intellect. I guess he was of that persuasion. And the religious uh, teachings and so forth that are often parables and poems and and uh, may, may seem to not make sense. They're, they're talking about something that, um, that transcends reason. Hmm? So if you try to capture it just with the fist of reason it may start to sound un unreasonable. Mm -hmm. That is only consciousness, or God in a fuller sense, rejecting your approach. When with your consciousness, when, with your rationality, you try to arrest in the fist of your, your intellect the, the Atma, mm -hmm. or God, and you, 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 you go there and you come back with just doubts. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the consciousness and the God had rejecting your approach. Get out. Get out. You can't come here by that. That's not a, a suitable vehicle. Hmm? We transcend. The Atma transcends reason. So it won't be known by reason. Hmm? There's other ways of knowing, right? Faith. Faith in, 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 in Guru and Shastra in a descending uh, way. The idea that in order to have perfect knowledge, we need a perfect method. I've got imperfect tools, instruments. I cannot be perfect, rabbit perfect knowledge. That's a reasonable conclusion. Hmm? So the other vehicle then, faith. Hmm? 
It's not the absence of reason that picks up where reason leaves off. It can be well-reasoned. Hmm? In the context of well-reasoned faith, we, we were able to put reason in its place, so to speak. So, at any rate, the nature of consciousness. What a big story. Hmm? That uh, is so much the uh, the, uh, uh, the preoccupation of really the central preoccupation of Vedanta when it comes to bhakti, then it really takes it to uh, what we call Krishna Chaitanya. Hmm? Krishna Chaitanya means consciousness, yeah, right? So the the consciousness of Krishna. Hmm? What is the consciousness? <laughs> that means he's he's always conscious about Radha. We can say something like that. This is a, so it's a big story. The love story, the love life of the of the absolute. Hmm? What goes on there? What goes on inside the sun? What the sun may do to this world is extraordinary. Hmm? As a provider, in so many ways, a distant provider. But what goes on inside? Of it? What are all those nuclear explosions? To go there in a sun suit and examine takes some courage, challenge, right? They're ready to go to the moon, but not to the sun. Only, only explore the reflective light. So, uh, so anyway, the point being that, uh, as you said, because in our worldview, gross matter has its origins in subtle matter. It, it that's just a common also idea, that's pretty in, universally intuitive in human society. They wouldn't say it like that or think of it necessarily in those terms, but you know, the old mind over matter or the idea that my thoughts and my intentions then give rise to my actions. That's pretty much how everybody functions, what everybody implicitly believes, right? That that the thoughts, actions, which are subtle, this, of course, from our perspective, this is subtle matter, that has been touched by consciousness and has the power to reflect it and so act in a consciousness-like way. That's what we call the false ego, false self, right? But it's thinking, it's feeling, it's it's willing, and that has uh, effects on, on, on gross matter. It causes actions, and there are consequences. So with, with awareness comes consequences. Hmm? You're aware of what, then there's some consequence. That's the idea. Hmm. So the, the consequences means karma. Hmm. And the more you're aware, well, the more there's karma. That's why we say in the less complex form of life, there's not any accruing of karma. What is the implication of that? That karma essentially is intentional. Hmm. It's root. It's rooted in intention. You understand? The animals, compared to the humans, um, excuse me, are um, their atma is more covered by the influence of gross matter, so they're more on automatic, so to speak. Hmm? Uh, uh, there are some similarities, but in human life, it's such a big difference. You don't expect a monkey to start a fire. Don't look for that. Hmm? And that's just the beginning of the difference. There are similarities, it's true, but don't expect them to start a fire. Hmm? That's not going to happen. And decide to cook. Hmm? 
So, uh, so anyway, the point being that the, the more there is awareness and the more there, uh, there is intention behind action, the greater the, the consequence is going to be. And well, this is something we universally accept, right? Of course, there's the materialistic school. I thought that actually thought does not influence action. Thought is only a brain, so there is only the movements of nature and nothing, nothing behind it. So, but that's a very hollow and shallow, one-dimensional, flat, flatland kind of uh, philosophical perspective and worldview that cannot be lived. No one can act like that, right? So, so. So, anyway, when we get there, so, uh, so, um, so, anyway, Arjuna has asked some uh, uh, questions, and this now gives rise to Krishna the opportunity to speak about himself, all that he is. This is much more. This is what I was saying than, and we were and we're repeating ourselves in terms of classes we've been giving recently, but it's worth emphasizing much more than what's been talked about thus far. We talked about the self, it's different from matter, uh, what is consciousness in a, in a very elementary way. Hmm? The teaching of the Gita, as profound as it is in the second chapter of Krishna's uh, Sankhya dissertation, is just touching the tip of the iceberg of what uh, consciousness is within the, within the language and the schools of, 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 of Vedanta. So this is a big shift now to go from the Atma to to Krishna. Hmm. And uh, again, it's a uh, it's kind of a summary of, in one sense, of what we find in later chapters. I've said about the later chapters that Krishna is speaking about himself and he's speaking very, in a very, like, uh, seems very self-centered way. I'm big, you know, everything rests on me like pearls on a string and no one can get out of the influence of my Maya except by me and Hamsarva Siprababo Matasa Rumpravartade. Everything comes from me. And so forth. This is Krishna, of course, talking about himself as the object of bhakti. He's not this really proud kind of guy. He has every reason to be proud, but he's not. And he's actually quite quite a gentleman. So here, he has spoken a few verses. And he's spoken in such a way as to both create or develop further Arjun's faith and create a doubt, which will cause him to ask a question about Krishna so that Krishna can speak about himself rather than just starting to speak about himself. If I don't speak about myself unless you ask, well, then I'm, you asked, so I'll tell you. If you want to know, I can say something about my, I wouldn't ordinarily. Hmm? This is more Krishna's nature, hmm? right? So yeah, he, ca- he, he caused Arjun to ask the question. And a good question, which, as I say, gives um, Krishna a chance to speak about first his omniscience and his eternality. So uh, he replies, right, Bhagavanavacha, he says, Arjun, both of us have passed through many births. Okay, he's going to speak about the difference, right? I know all of them, whereas you, O Parantapa, subduer of enemies, do not. Now, it's a little peculiar in this verse that um, Krishna invokes two names of Arjuna, and one of them is Arjuna itself. 
and there are many names that uh, Krishna refers to his friend by in the Gita, but um, this may be the only place that he refers to him as Arjun. Hmm? I'm not sure, but it's, 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 if, if, if not, it's not often. Hmm? Arjun means pure, but he's not using it in that way here, hmm? even though Arjun is pure. <laughs> but um, by his own power, hmm? which he is going to speak about, that's behind his, his advent, that same power is involved in causing Arjuna to ask uh, questions. Like, for example, a question about his omniscience. Arjuna's asking inherently. But Arjuna already knows, if we look in the Bhagavatam, Arjuna already knows that Krishna is omniscient. Why is he asking about it? That is Yoga Maya. So that Yoga Maya is coming up in the, in the next verse. It's, of course, it's behind what what uh, the, the 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 shakti, the energy behind uh, Krishna's advent, as opposed to karma, the Maya shakti, which is beyond everybody, behind everyone else's birth and and death and so forth, right? What is that uh, example? And of course, Krishna teaches in or Rupa Goswami uh, has taught in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu amongst the various qualities of Krishna. One of them is omniscience, hmm? to know the heart of. Of, of 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 everyone, hmm? that's how he defines it. To know the heart of everyone, um, and uh, he gives an example. This is a it's a nice example from the Bhagavatam. It's probably played out in in the Mahabharata. I think in Bhagavatam, Arjun re- remembers it when he's re- when he's realizing that Krishna has passed from the world. We talked about this the other day a little bit. His separation. It comes in the fifteenth chapter of the f- of the first canto. I think he recalls it there, this event, as he is recalling other events of his interaction with his friend Krishna, and um, events that are played out in great uh, greater measure in in Mahabharat and maybe another Puranas also, like Adi Purana. Um, so the story is what that um, that. Durvas came to with his horde of ten thousand or whatever disciples to um, uh, Yudhisthira Maharaj with the view to um, be fed, and um, I'm not sure if on this occasion he had some ulterior motive. You, you may know that he did when he came to Ambarish. Similar story. He came to Ambarish, and Ambarish was being touted as a great sadhu and a great devotee. And devotees, bhaktas, are difficult to uh, understand, even for the learned. Hmm? I mean, Subari Muni. I mean, he was meditating underwater. He couldn't understand Garuda. He cursed Garuda. I mean, how big of a mistake could you make to to curse Garuda? But he did. This is what the Bhagavatam is like, teaching something there. He was like, could meditate underwater. You might, you'd think, well, that's it. This guy's, let's listen to what he says. Bloop, 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 bloop. And that's what they say a lot of times. When he came above, above the water, all he could say is, I curse Garuda, you know. So, with all my power that I've got, I use it to curse the carrier of Vishnu. I mean, how confused you could be despite your ability to perform uh, austerities and ov- at least overtly look very 
non-material for the uneducated person. Bhagavatam asks us to look very closely and get an education as to what is spiritual. And the answer is, well, the romantic life of Krishna. <laughs> and then you're supposed to pass out. What? The, par- the, the, the unmarried, adulterous life of Krishna. That is spiritual. Hmm. So... So, you got to nasta prayeshu abadreshu nityam bhag to say, but you got to pay very close attention. Hmm? Ordinary people see somebody sleeping on a bag of bed of nails, they're ready to give him money and ask him to give him a good son, give him a good daughter, give me a good husband, give me a good wife, give me money, give me hmm, whatever. <laughs> right? Hmm. They don't know what to ask or they don't know who to ask. It's pretty common. So Duras, he couldn't understand Ambarish. That's another whole story in the ninth candle of the Bhagavatam. And um, he came to his house to eat, and uh, he delayed uh, to the point where it was a codice, and codice was ending, and the Vaishnav Ambarish always observed the codice very carefully, so he would have to break his fast. But if he broke his fast before feeding his guests... That's considered an offense. If guests come, first you feed them, and then, then you take afterwards. So when the codice, um paran, the time for breaking the codice passed in this instance, then uh, Durvas knew, well, certainly uh, they were out in the river bathing. Certainly Ambrish is eaten now, so I'm going to come in and I have every right to curse him. Of course, what Ambarish did was he drank water, which is a way of breaking the fast and not eating at the same time. So his spiritual intelligence uh, uh, was greater than the, the learned Gyani, um, Durvas, and when he offended Ambarish, then Krishna's chakra manifested, and you know, the story chased him all the way uh, to Vaikuntha, where he was allowed to come in by Krishna. I've given an example before, like a king sometimes they bring a tiger in a cage for entertainment into the palace at night. So everybody in Vaikuntha looking at him like, weird, this guy. And a Vaishnava Aparadi also. And Narayan said, I can't save you, you have to go to Ambarish. So I'm not sure uh, about Durvas in this instance, but he went to Yudhisthira, and I don't know if he had, I don't think he had a similar um, offensive idea in mind, but there was, um, it was thought to be such that if after cooking, I think that Radharani, no, no, this is Draupadi, Draupadi was blessed in some way by somebody hmm, to cook, maybe by Krishna, I forget, maybe it was this instance. Um, but at any rate, uh, Draupadi was the cook, right? And yeah, the, the story goes that once that she had cooked and everyone who was served, she would eat. After she would eat, then nothing more could be cooked from the bowl. As long as, as, long as Draupadi had not eaten, food would appear from the, the pot. I mean, it must have been Krishna's arrangement. It had some kind of blessing like that. So she could cook and feed. As long as she had not eaten, if more guests came, there was still more. A great world to live in, such such possibilities. So, um, so she ate something like that, or she ate. 
Krishna hadn't eaten. Yeah. So, what Krishna took said, "Is there any something rice stuck on the pot there, or something like?" It was a piece of rice, and he took that and ate. And then, oh right. So then, when he when Krishna ate, though she could nothing more could come. She couldn't cook anymore. There was some piece of spinach, I think it was, and, and rice stuck on the pot, which is not enough to feed anybody. And Krishna said, "Well, let me eat that." And then when Krishna ate, all the sages became full. And they were embarrassed that they'd come to Yudhisthira's and they didn't, and they didn't stay long enough to eat. But they had they moved on. They couldn't think of eating. Hmm? So the point is that Arjuna witnessed this, and he, and he could understand. This is an example that Rupa Goswami gives to um, sub- substantiate his statement that one of the qualities of Krishna is his omniscience. So Arjuna already knew that Krishna was omniscient, hmm? but here. Krishna is putting him under his, in this case, his yoga maya, so that he's acting like someone who's under the Mahamaya. It therefore refers to him as Arjun, you tree. Hmm? Arjun is a kind of a tree, also, as you know. So this is how he uses the term here. And it's a tree that grows very tall. And as tall as it grows is as deep as its roots go. So it's a very, it's just, if we go for a moment, to the Damodar Leela, where this Arjun trees, twin Arjun trees obviously take us, then you know that um, that the son of sons of Kuver, Nala Kuver, Kuver, Nala they had been um, um, bathing and drinking and womanizing. And Narda happened to appear on the scene and they showed him no respect or no expressed no modesty uh, for their behavior and so forth. Was it Nard? I think so. Nard cursed them to take birth as trees, to stand still, naked, for a long time. In, such as the blessing of Nard, in the Braj, where in the early part of his Leela Krishna would be brought up. So those trees had been growing there for a long, long, long time. Hmm? And they were very tall. That's why when they fell, the whole of Braj came, oh, such a sound, such a big, these Arjun trees were there, That's huge trees, very tall and so deeply rooted, so that, that they would fall like that, just fall over with the roots so deep. Not like a redwood, for example, at Audari, where they're, they're tall trees, but the roots are very... Uh, horizontal, they don't go deep. So these very deep roots for them to fall over. This is unheard of, practically unheard of. Mm. And so, when they when they were pulled over by the by the mortar that Krishna was tied to with the ribbon from Yashoda's hair hmm? and the, the mortar you know the, 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 he, he, he somehow got the mortar I guess he was tied like this with his hands to a mortar so then he managed to move the mortar in such a way that it turned horizontal and then he pulled it up to the trees and of course he, he's, just a, he's just a child at this time hmm? so he thought of 
breaking, his intention was, well it would seem, was to break the ribbon and free himself from the mortar. Hmm? But he could not break the ribbon, hmm? just a ribbon tied by Jashoda. Which is, which is, represents her love. He could not break that. She tied him up. Why? Because she thought, I've chastised him now, and he's actually going to run away from home. Hmm? So I'm going to tie him up. She didn't really tie him to chastise him. She had already chased him and, and, and caught him, but then she had a f apprehension that he was going to run away. Hmm? So she tied him up very tightly with her heart. And of course, he allowed her to be tied up overwhelmed by her affection. And the tie, the bond was so strong that rather than the ribbon breaking, just try to understand, the Arjun trees became uprooted and fell. This is just all to speak about the power of Yashoda's love. Yashoda Mai Ki Jai. So all of the brudge came. And And then, then those trees took birth as Snigdakanta and Madhukanta, and they became the bards who were omniscient themselves, who were related to the, an extended way to the family of Nanda Maharaj and had a reputation of traveling throughout the countryside and putting people's lives to song, which is what the bards would do. But these were two very special bards. They had a reputation for being omniscient, knowing about people's previous lives. Hmm? And putting that into song as well. So when they came in the Braj vicinity, this Gopal Champu of Jiva Goswami, then Nanda Maharaj, typically in the evening, hmm, um, in the Pradosh Leela, evening time, after Krishna comes home from herding cows, take a little prasadam, clean up and so forth, and there's, and there's entertainment hmm, in Braj. So there's some, some, there's an arena, there's entertainment every night, you, don't, you won't be bored there. And so they, uh, Nandamars requested these bards to come forward and, you know, tell our life story. Hmm? And, and so Gopal Champu is a retelling on the part of Snigdakanta and Madhukanta of the previous life of Nandamars and community in the Prakat Leela. This is in the Uprakat Leela, in the Unmanifest Leela. They tell the whole story. And, oh, they knew the very hearts of everybody, how they were feeling, and so was they were. So this is this astounding entertainment, uh, night after night after night after night. Hmm. So we get a little bit on the tangent there, but Krishna now is referring to Arjun as a tree. Now remember, Nard cursed him to become Arjun trees. So there's something particularly ignorant about Arjun trees, I guess, because they're so deeply rooted. Hmm and standing for so long, something like that. Nard's curse is beautiful, of course, because he added to the curse in the courtyard, in this place, where they, they would get the blessing of Krishna ultimately. Hmm. Of course, when he pulled the trees over, only some young friends saw the Nalakavara Managriva and everyone else just concerned for Krishna's well-being. But here he says, you're just like an Arjun tree. Hmm? You're like a tree, ignorant. And that ignorance is the root of all suffering. Material nature has said to have two features. Avaranatmika, prakshepatmika. Avaranatmika means covering potency, ignorance. So 
And, and that, out of that deeply rooted affair of ignorance, avidya, hmm, comes, arises distorted actions. For example, you're covered by the idea that your body, you're the body, and then you act as if you are, hmm, when you're not. So the two names here can be said to uh, imply uh, this about Arjun. Uh, you're an ordinary person. I, he's, he's covering him by his yoga mind to appear as such, to ask such questions and so forth for our benefit. Hmm? And you're like a tree. And and parantapa. Parantapa means like great um, warrior. So a warrior sees duality, the friends and enemies. This is Prakshepatmika. Avaranatmika, the covering potency, Prakshepatmika. We have no enemies. Hmm? Friends and enemies, this is, uh, you know, uh, an, uh, an idea based on the senses, right? The duality. Matrasparsha stukunteya sitoshna sukudukata. Right? Gita says, good, bad, happy, sad, I like, I don't like, friend and enemy, this is all a determination arising from the senses and the mind. Hmm? I'm going to go beyond mind and the senses and uh, enter in the world where there's only friends, hmm? no enemies. Right? So with these two names, he um, speaks about the nature of, of the bewilderment in material existence that he is teaching about in you has taught to the sun god is now teaching to arjun hmm, um, by which people can become delivered from such um, ignorance hmm. so he says that he addresses him in this way and what does he say he says uh, bahum Mahuni me bitan bititani janmani tabacharjuna tani ambeda sarbani natumbeta parantapa. So now the difference between you and me, the beginning idea comes what I know we've had many lives, we've been born many times, but the difference between you and me is I know them, whereas you, O subduer of enemies, you do not. So then we come to the sixth verse, where now Krishna begins to explain his omniscience, his omnipotence, his eternality. Ajopi san abhayatman, butanam ishparopi san, prakritim samadhishtaya sambhavami atmamaya. Although I am myself birthless and by nature imperishable, and although I am the controller of all beings, Nevertheless, remaining in control of my material energy, I manifest by my own inner power. Hmm. So here, a very important, um, and we see the, the Gaudiya line here uh, very much in this verse. And what is Krishna speaking about? in the context of explaining his omniscience and his eternality. He says, you and I have had many births. I remember them. You don't. Hmm? You're in ignorance. I'm not. Hmm? 
implication of the ignorance, avidya is, avidya is the basis of all karmic action, which is the prakshepatmika, the distorted actions, right? Then perpetuate further actions along the same nature and so forth. Bhakti has the power to uproot the avidya, ignorance, the root cause of all of our problems. But Krishna doesn't have that ignorance, therefore he is appearing in the world under a different influence. This is the very, the very Gaudiya sense that we find in this verse. What do I mean by that? That um, Krishna is saying, Atmamaya, Prakritim Samadhisthaya. Prakritim Samadhisthaya. There is a Prakriti, in this sense means material nature, and I am the Adhisthan. I preside over that. Uttanamisvaropishan. Presiding over all beings, I take birth in the world. Hmm? And in con- in full control of my material nature, I appear atmamaya, by my own maya. Maya, of course, means means mercy, also, but here it means it. What this is the this is where the first place in the Gita, how appropriate and how godi is what I'm what I'm saying. Uh, that that Krishna is speaking about himself, Bhagawan. Hmm? Um, Bhagavat, we have the, the, the after the after the Tattva Sandarbha of Jiva Goswami, who's our Tattva Acharya, right? We have which is a kind of a introduction to the, to the treaties, the Sandarbhas. We have the Bhagavat Sandarbha, hmm? and so the Bhagavat Sandarbha is all about Bhagwan. Next comes the Paramatma Sandarbha, then the Krishna Sandarbha, going into some some detail there. But the Bhagavat Sandarbha about the nature of God. Hmm? And you cannot talk about the nature of God without talking about what? Isurup Shakti, Atma Maya. So huge topic of the Bhagavad Sandarbha. The Swarup Shakti. Hmm. So as I say, this is very Gaudiya. Krishna's beginning to speak about himself, and he can't speak about himself without speaking about his Atma Maya, as it's referred to here. It's Swarup Shakti. This uh this this Shakti is also referred to in later on in the ninth canto where Krishna says what? Ninth chapter. Yeah. Mahatmanas to Mamparta. Daivim Prakritim. He uses a different term, but same way. Daivim Prakritim Ashrita. Ashrita. Sheltered under my divine energy. Daivim Prakritim. Mahatmas. Great souls move in this world. So the implication is what? That's later, of course, in the theological section, developing it further. As I move in this world, not by the force of karma and ignorance, so great souls move in this world also. And what is the driving force behind it? Atma Maya, Daivim Prakritim, Swarup Shakti, the essence of, of which is Bhakti. So, as we say, just as karma is is a uh, the a primary driving force in this world and it has no beginning. So bhakti is in this world without any beginning also. There are always sadhakas in the world making making bhakti available through their teaching, through their example. It's said that Krishna doesn't differentiate in terms of who he shows 
his, his grace too. He's he's not um, biased. Hmm? But wherever bhakti chooses to go, then he has to go there. So there can't be Krishna without bhakti. Prabhupada used to say it as another way. Krishna's never alone. That's the full implication of that statement. Krishna's never alone. His disciples should think that out. What does that mean? Uh, then, you're, then you're deep in the Bhagavats and Dharva. Hmm? Everything's in Prabhupada's books. He said everything. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> what does it mean? <laughs> what are the implications? So, and and it's important. So, bhakti is not just some devotion in the world, devoted to music, devoted to your kids, your devoted to your parents, and so forth. It's actually constituted of the internal shakti of Bhagawan. What's it, it? It his form. Hmm? is inseparable from the Sarup Shakti. The two are one and different. So he can't talk about himself without talking about a Sarup Shakti. I come in this world by another force, by another influence, Atmamaya. And to emphasize what that Atmamaya means, he says other two things here. Prakritim Samadhishtaya. And what does he say about other living beings? Hmm? Um, just to give us some idea of the power of his 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 Atma Maya, of his Sarup Shakti. I come in this world under the influence of my Sarup Shakti, in full control of my Maya Shakti. Hmm? And and in full control of everyone, all beings, everyone under that influence. It means what? This Swarup Shakti cannot uh, uh, be overcome by the Maya Shakti. A very basic but very important point. It's a point that's very basic, but it's been uh, the implications of it have been misunderstood in the, in the community uh, to uh, to a large extent, hmm? with ideas like falling from Vaikuntha or something like that, where 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 the whole governing influence is the Swarup Shakti. How can Maya Shakti have any standing there? Hmm? Well, you have free will, but if your free will is so powerful, then you'd be just will not to be here in the first place. But you can't with your free will. You can't even come out from underneath the Maya Shakti, which has no power to influence the Sarup Shakti. So, if you're completely under the influence of the Sarup Shakti in Vaikuntaloka, how are you going to will to go elsewhere? <laughs> how will you just will yourself out? Not possible. Hmm? There is will there. And it's always willing to serve Krishna because here our will is always used under the influence of the Maya Shakti, which is giving us choices. Unless bhakti comes into our life, then we can will, which means make some effort to respond to the merciful opportunity that bhakti presents by giving herself to us and bringing Bhagavan thereby into our life. So the power of bhakti this is missed by the big, big ganis. They want to think their way out. Think their way out of jail. Something like that. <laughs> make, a, make, make a break. Something like that. But, um, as Krishna will say later in the middle chapters, my my is insurmountable, hmm? but by by my 
grace means in the form of bhakti, and it's easy to cross over. Mayametam Durantite. So he's uh, introduced his Sarup Shakti here in Bhagavad Gita. If we want to say, what's this crazy Sarup Shakti idea of the, these Gaudiya people? You know, the, this is a very Gaudiya idea. It's, I wouldn't say it's absent in something like uh, Ramanuja's teaching and, and, and so forth, but the way it's emphasized in Gaudiya Sampradaya is, is, is uh, unique. And uh, obviously uh, there's an emphasis on it because... This is our cry, so to speak, in Braj Jairad, hey Jairad. We you know we're giving precedence hmm, to Bhakti hmm, over Bhagwan. Hmm. All right, is Bhakti Bhagwan under the influence of of Bhakti, which he always is, but to the full measure. Hmm, that's what we find in Braj. Hmm. What, so, what is the implication? What to speak of having the power to dispel the influence of Maya? Maya Shakti. Bhakti, his internal energy, his Atma Maya, his Rup Shakti, has the power to overwhelm him. He's saying, I'm here because my Atma Maya has brought me here. Wherever she takes me, wherever she goes, I have to go. Hmm? In a prominent way, she's manifesting, as we were saying the other day, in the lives of some devotees, and I have to bring my Leela to them. And give them give them a footing in my leela, and meet my associates. Meet me means meet my associates, meet them. Hmm? And we we'll play the leela out in in brief here, sequentially from birth to 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 the slaying of um, that last demon. What's his name? It starts with a D. Yeah, in Mathura, actually. Killed in Mathura. Um, Dantavakra. After the slaying of Dantavakra, Krishna comes back to Vrindavan. There is Swami Bhagavan. He takes everybody to the uppercut. Leela. Then, in a Dwarkesh manifestation of himself, he returns and deals with the Dwarka Leela. It's a little detail, but but he's brought here by his by his by bhakti, by his atma, by, by his devotees, by the bhakti manifesting in their lives to to a point where their separation cannot bear um, to um, uh, they cannot bear the separation any longer. So he can't either. Is the point? So this is how, this is very charming. This big, powerful. Ishvaro, uh, what say? I'm in control of all living beings. Oh, yeah. And Maya Shakti under my influence. But if you understand this properly, but I'm here as a friend of Arjun, as the chariot driver of Arjun. Take me here. Take me there. Hmm? Krishna didn't even have a chariot. Hmm? Arjun made fun of him. He didn't even have a chariot. He does have a chariot, but in this case, of course, he didn't by a certain earlier arrangement. But uh, Arjun made made fun of him for that, for sure. Hmm. You're driving my chariot. See who I am. See who you are. Of course, till the eleventh chapter of the Gita came along, <laughs> and then it changes tune a little bit. 
for a short period of time. Until hmm. Krishna again manifested his two-armed form. So this is such a high theological um, idea, right? The big guy. Hmm. This is very soft, actually, and completely controlled by his devotees. Again, I've just said many times, and we see it here in the Gita also. I consider the Bhagavatam the theological sequel to the Gita. What's the Bhagavatam about? Is it about the power of God? No, it's about the weakness of God. Hmm? And here it's it's here in the Gita also. He makes big statements about himself, but here he comes out and says, it sounds like he's making a big statement about himself, but we understand a problem. I'm here because I'm under the influence of my, my Swarup Shakti, hmm? which is manifest prominently in the lives of my devotees, and I can't bear their separation. I have to be with them. Hmm? What kind of controller am I? Hmm? I'm controlled by brain, controlled by love. Hmm? So these are the, here's a seed, right? In, in the Gita, Gita Upanishad, first place Krishna's beginning speaking about his, his omniscience, his eternality, his Aishvarya. And the Godias can just like, see right through the Aishvarya to his sweetness. Hmm? Atmamaya, and then their minds go, yes, that, and what is the power of Atmamaya? What are the implications of that? And drive the chariot, let's move on. <laughs> Something like that. Bhagavan Sri Krishna Ke Jai. So, any uh, question? He's just being born as a little baby. Right? <laughs> we have to take care of him. This is Mother Yasoda's thinking. What's, how powerful is she? What is her position? That is Janmastami. Ananda Maharaj, how he feels. What's the time? 5.35. No. So, any question? Yes. You've heard. You haven't read it? <laughs> no. I've, I've been listening to uh, a lot of time. Okay. Good, good. <clears throat> that the uh, biggest attempt to Taliban is the Mayavad philosophy. Um, but then here in this age, there's atheism, where then there's the idea that it is no God at all and no substance of Scripture. Well, it's an interesting uh, question in that um, in the time that uh, Jiva Goswami wrote the Sandarbhas, or in the Vedic times, uh, if you will, prior to that, uh, when the Gita was uh, played out and so on and so forth, um, atheistic philosophy was very, very minor. It's mentioned in the Gita. In the second chapter, Krishna does mention atheism, and just in passing, in the context of speaking to Arjuna about the Atma, hmm, giving different arguments and so forth. And um, I forget the verse, but he does mention, like, uh, uh, 
the famous uh, atheist that you hear uh, from the Vedic times is Charvak, who said, you know, beg, borrow, or steal, but get ghee or something like that and eat because enjoy now because that's all there is, something like that. Um, how sophisticated his philosophy was at the time, that I don't know, that's a pretty, probably a pretty crude representation of it. It sounds hedonistic, it sounds hedonistic, but um, at any rate, it, it would appear that it was a very minor philosophy. The major philosophies of the time, although, and I mentioned this yesterday, probably referred to some of them as atheistic, like Sankhi and so forth. In a broader sense, they're, they're not atheistic because they accepted supernatural. They also accepted it. They all accepted the, the revelation of the Veda in some respect. Buddhism came along, and Buddhism was considered Gnostic or atheistic because um, it didn't acknowledge uh, the God, the Godhead. Whether you know that's the whole other thing. Whether that was an ontological argument of Buddha, or as we sometimes argue, whether it was just a preaching strategy. There's evidence to the latter which you can make a good case for, especially if you're amongst Buddhists and they want to be pluralistic. Hmm? Because if they want to be pluralistic, they cannot dismiss the mystical experience and the, and, and the mystics of the mystics and the mystics themselves, the saints and so forth, of other traditions who are positing a god and arguably uh, experiencing the... Uh, at least observably, hmm, things that are enabling them to do the same thing that the Buddhists can do, like control the mind, the senses, and so forth, which makes you observably transcendental, or superhuman. You follow me? No. In other words, if 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 you say the idea that there is a god and attaining a god is one of the biggest illusions, a lot of Buddhists will teach this. You want to become happy in, in, through this and attain some. It's not about attaining anything. So, okay, so that's fine. Now, ask the Buddha to compare notes with Ramanuja. Say, we're going to look at the Buddha. We're going to look at Ramanuja. We're going to see they're two equally saintly and have uh, the qualities of mastering the mind and the senses and, and so on and so forth. They can both sit, right? And they can both talk. And they can walk their talk or whatever. Sit their talk. So, but meanwhile, Ramanuja is totally theistic or Gaudiya people. So if God doesn't exist and that's a big illusion, how are they getting those experiences? So then you, if you want to be, mean, remain pluralistic and acknowledge other traditions as a Buddhist, then you have to start looking at the idea in Buddhism that there's no God as a preaching strategy rather than an ontological position that they take that there actually is no God. Like Buddha said, well, when he asked about God, there are several sutras where he says, that's not the issue, let's not talk about that. You, you the self that you conceive yourself to be, is an illusion. Let's just deal with that. Let's not deal with any further metaphysical arguments. So that's taken off unless it's dismissal of the idea of God, but others say maybe it's just a strategy that right now we're not going to talk about God, but your, your suffering is the way to end suffering. That gives some power. You know this, whether it's God or not, we don't know, but we know that. So, but at any rate, um, 
apparently, most Hindus, and of course Buddha was a Hindu, that's another thing, um, most Hindus and Vedantists, they take Buddha's argument to be an ontological argument, there's no God, they call him Gnostic, atheistic. And also because he rejected the, the idea that the Vedas were uh, authored, unauthored, that they were divine. Hmm? Of course, if you really look closely at the Buddha, he's arguing against the karma kanda, which is exactly what we do in the uh, in the in, in the uh, Panishads and the Uttarmimamsa, uh, uh, hmm? the Vedanta, Atato Brahma Jignas. We say these in, these these formulas and sacrifices for things. It's not what the essence of religion is about. Sarvadharma put it you have to give that up. You're not the body. Hmm? So there's this very strong current of rejecting. I mean, the whole that's Vedanta. It rejects karma mimamsa. Gyan hmm? uh, steps on the head of Varnashram, and so forth. So it's no new great big thing that Buddha did that. We're already doing that within Hinduism, hmm? and we're getting the lead to do that from books. And because we're stepping into the light of the self, we say the books themselves are coming from the light of the self and its source and so forth. But at any rate, uh, there is the Buddhist perspective that's often thought in Hinduism to be Gnostic or atheistic. So there are there are some, there's the Charvak, there's the Buddhas, hmm. right? But uh, at least at least with regard to Buddhism until the time of Ashok, Buddhism wasn't that prominent. There, you know, there's a nice story in this regard. And uh, and that is that um, oftentimes in the meditations on the apricot lila hmm, of Krishna, let's say his eightfold daily lila, we look at it as an apricot lila meditation. The uh, devotees like Vishwanachakvati Thakur who have written poetic books on the Kastaka lila of Krishna, typical day, eightfold Divisions of the day of Krishna, or uh, the um, what's his name, Krishna Kaviraj. This comes originally from the um, a section of the Shiva Purana, actually called the Snat Kumar Samhita. And incidentally, Sanatana Goswami is thought to be a partial incarnation of Sanat Kumar, and he's of course uh, referred to as a guru figure in the life of Rupa Goswami, who penned eleven verses. Hmm? About the eightfold divisions, that that Krishna Kaviraj turned into th- thousands of slokas in the book called um, Govindalilamrita. Hmm? So, in such descriptions like Govindalilamrita, oftentimes it's described that and Ananda Marj's house is like made out of gold with uh, gates uh, out of emerald and uh, and pillars made out of uh, lapis and uh, it sounds extremely like opulent. I thought it was supposed to be like a rural, you know, cow dung everywhere, you know, dusty kind of a place. But um, that whole rural sensibilities, of course, are fully preserved. The people are very rural and simple, and they they're not like people typically living in in a palatial situation, uh, in Aristotic. 
class of people living above everybody else. They have all the, it's described like this, have all those opulences, but they're simple. Hmm? In other words, oh, gold, yeah, you get that at Home Depot. That, that's a place in America where you just, you know, you just buy building materials like concrete, you know. You can get that at the, uh, in Ikoya at the uh, Ferreteria. You want some gold? Go to the Ferreteria. You, can build, you want to build a, yeah, just go pick up some gold over there. Hmm? You, you, you want a uh, nice floor? Yeah, there's some diamonds. You can get them at the Ferreteria. Just pick up a bag. Hmm? Or you can find them on the, go to the forest floor. You can find some emeralds there. This is how this is the the idea why it's described like this or or it is like this but that's what it means do you understand that's what it means hmm? you could say it's a device to attract people who want those things hmm? also but I don't think that's so much part of the the the, the poetic descriptions and so forth hmm? these things are just common what's the wealth there what goes on in that gold house with Silver roof and emerald pillars and and diamond doors and so forth is Nanda Nishoda's love for Krishna, the Prem, and the beauty of that, the simplicity of that. And they have no; these things are of no importance to them, any more than concrete is. Well, if you need to build a house, you need some concrete. Okay, it's important for the moment, but then who thinks about concrete <laughs> otherwise? Now, if this is made out of gold in this world, my goodness, that would be the story, right? Right? They built a palace once in Nuvrindaban called the Palace of Gold, and people were coming there just to see the gold palace. Unfortunately, what was going on in the palace was not such that it would be more attractive to them if they came in the palace. That was an unfortunate chapter in Iskand's history, but it was supposed to have been bring them on the basis of the gold and then show them something more than that. I don't know. Anyway, point is, this is a nice story, and that is that Akbar, who was the um, emperor, I guess he was emperor or big king of India, who became Buddhist. Hmm. So Buddhism really took a hole in India when Akbar became a Buddhist. Because when the king becomes converted, well, so do his uh, constituents for the most part. So um, the story goes that he met Sanatana Goswami in Braj, and he was impressed. There's many stories like this of, in, 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 of Mughal leaders, in this case Akbar coming, um, uh, 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 maybe before his conversion, I don't know. But at any rate, uh, and being influenced by the Goswamis. And some people say, well, those are just stories, but we do see, who can verify, but we, we do see, we, of course, we'll accept our, our oral tradition, but we do see that obviously they got the patronage of kings because those Goswamis lived under different trees every night um, who forgot about what money was. They didn't, you know, they, money? It's just like, what's that? They were living with a vision that made the material world just like some some music in the background. You know, it's just it's kind of going on. Oh, is that still going on, that thing? And they were living in the Dom like that. Hmm? So what was money to them, right? Famous story of Sanatana was said to have a Chintamani jewel and a thief heard about it and came to steal it from him. And and then Sanatana realized, he said, oh, it's, it's over there somewhere underneath that. I, put it on, I think I put it under that tree over there. So he went and found it and then he realized, wow, he's, what is the value 
that he has within him to look at a Chintamani stone like this, and then he became converted. But anyway, in this instance, Sanatan was asked by Akbar that what, if he could render some service. So these kings were rendering service and building monuments where the Goswami said, this is where the uh, Kaliyanag Lila was performed. Build a bathing ghat and a temple there. Surakeshi was demon was slain with their bhava, which is what Mahabhu told them to do, excavate the places of Krishna's pastimes. And they did so with such power that the ruling um, members of society, the monarchs who were wealthy, would, would come. And if, you, if you're a Rani, if your queen didn't have a temple commemorating some place of Krishna's pastimes um, in Vrindavan, then you were, you were nobody. It's not that you have money, it's how you spend it. If you didn't spend your money in Vrindavan, you know, you had, you had nothing to show, you know. You, you, were, you, were, you weren't wealthy, really. So, uh, anyway, so he was asked if he could do some service. So, Sanatana Goswami told him, oh, on such and such temple, on the step going up, there's a chip. So, part of the stone on the, on the curb, on the edge of the temple, is chipped off if you could replace it. And the opera looked at him like, you want me to replace a chip of stone on the step to the temple? I'm Akbar. You know, I'm the friggin' emperor. You know, I asked you, you know, these sadhus, you know, they're crazy. So anyway, I'll do what he said, you know. So the Akbar went, and when he went to look at the the damage and the repair by the grace of Sanatana Goswami, he had the vision. And that corner of a stone was more, it would have been more diamond or lapis than he had in his entire treasury. Then he realized it's what what was where Sanatan Goswami was living, in what kind of world, hmm? what it what 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 it made of his wealth and so forth. Right? Hmm. So, at any rate, back to the atheist philosophy, right? Uh, Buddhism is an atheist philosophy. I think Akbar became a Buddhist, if I remember correctly. But Buddhism, uh, but atheism uh, uh, was uh, not. Of course, by the time Jiva Goswami was writing this in Darbas, Buddhism had been there, but it 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 it, it did not really take hold in India, uh, you know, it, 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 the way that to really displace Hinduism. Hmm? Neither the Mughal invasions was was the Muslim religion able to really, by by any stretch of the imagination, come close to um, replacing Hinduism. So it's it's powerful. It's a well reasoned. Uh, uh, tradition and so forth. So at any rate, yeah, atheism wasn't very prime. I'm making a long story, but it's interesting. Some interesting points have come up, but it wasn't much to um, think about. Whereas Mayavad, right, was this using of the sacred texts that the Vaishnavas saw as fully theistic, especially the Gaudias, full-fledged, as Shudamarsh would say, theism, taking it all the way to Vrindavan, as we've been speaking here, Krishna under the influence of his Rup Shakti, full-fledged idea of theism, where the finite, infinite, becomes like the finite in order for there to be intimacy. Such a high theological idea and so forth, right? And here these these other people are, they, they, they're taking the same literatures and they're turning uh, Krishna and Vishnu, Narayan, into something constituted of the Sattva-guna. How offensive, right? Because in Mayavad, there is Ishwar, Vishnu, but he is just a manifestation of the Sattva Guna. That, that's 
helps you if you're not too smart and you do bhakti, is the idea. So this was uh, in Chaitanya Charitamrita, to give you another angle of the way to look at it, Mahaprabhu met with Buddhists and converted them hmm, in South India. Uh, there's a story to that effect. And um, in that section, there's a statement, I, I forget the exact Bengali, but Pujapad Sridharmarsh interpreted it in an interesting way, which was half-truth is worse than no truth at all. So what he's saying is the Buddhists had no truth at all. They said there is no God. The Mayavadis, however, they give a half-truth. There's God, but you know, he's not everything you guys think he is. And so they're here they are, they, the Buddhists aren't using the Vedas. They're rejecting them. They're rejecting God. Here these other fellows are like, you tell me what's what's worse. Let's put it like this. Another way of like, what's worse, a thief or a counterfeiter? Ooh, the counterfeiter. Right? He's even worse. He's a kind of a thief, but he's because he's taking the good money and bad, you know, fake making fake money. Right? Counterfeiter. He just walks up and says. I'd like to buy some milk. Here he's keep the change. <laughs> Doesn't look like a criminal, but how deceiving he is, right? So, so the Mayavadi philosophy sometimes is thought of like that because, as I said the other day, they insert this two tiers of Brahman in there, and they distort. Uh, they don't take the scripture in a straightforward way. Not that you take it literally, but I mean philosophically speaking, they don't take it in a straightforward way. From in our Godi estimation, so uh, and they are very prominent. So compared to atheism, you know, it's had no prominence whatsoever. And this Mayavad was very, very prominent. Shankar was very influential. I mean, Madhva came, Ramanuja came after Shankar to deal with the havoc, so to speak, wreaked by Shankar, you could say. And still he was around and alive and well at the time of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, his teaching and so forth. So... Uh, yeah, the Gaudias take umbrage with the Mayavads, and uh, and if you don't get this Mayavad out of your system, then you, you can't be a devotee. Is the idea so? They're a little strong on that. Hmm? Now, to answer your question, what, what's worse than today? Atheism? Or who's even heard of Mayavad? Or well, um, yeah, um, 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 you may notice that myself, in my own discourse, I tend to present in a broad way Advaitic type of conclusions and conclusions of bhakti and ask people, to, so you decide which one, but it's obvious which way to choose, the way I've talked about it, which is an accurate depiction. Just like the simple uh question, what is better, to love to exist or to exist to love? So, you know, I give these kind of, is that because, well, that sounds better, yeah. What's better? If the questions are, what's out there and who's asking the question? Is who a what? Is what a who? Are they the, that's the next question. Are they the same or are they different? That's what life's about. Hmm? You take materialism and what do you have? You have 
The who and the what are the same. They're both matter. Hmm? Right? And then there's this false self. It doesn't really exist. It's all an illusion. It's only your brain and other physical manifestations. Now you take Mayavad, and what have you got? The who and the what. Who's in there? What's out there? Who's asking the question? They say, are they the same? Yep, they're the same. They're the same. Hmm. They do away with the brain. They, uh, you know, they do away with the objective world, and it's all—it's only only Brahman. Hmm. And there's no false self. That's an illusion. They're very similar. Do you understand? Hmm. They say the same thing, and that, uh, these these things the same, right? Hmm. Hmm. Um, which is worse? Well. Um, Given the currents of thought in the world today, I would say the, the atheism is worse because it's re, it's attempting to convince people that consciousness and it can be reduced to brain to matter, which is meaningless, hmm? makes for a meaningless life, and so on and so forth. The implications of that we discuss from time to time. The Mayabads, on the other hand, they accept consciousness in a purpose-driven world. Hmm? And and their arguments could be used to defeat materialism, and at least then you're talking about something supernatural. And now we're going to have a discussion about what its nature is. Okay, we got rid of all the atheists now. Now now we're going to talk about we accept that consciousness is, is something that's independent of the brain, uh, ontologically different, it's causal and and so forth. Um, now. So what's the nature of that consciousness? And by the way, are you sure there's no world, or is, there, is, that, is that a Shakti of, of Bhagwan? It's not what it looks like, but, it's, but there is something out there. That's what we would say. It's not what it looks like, but there is something out there. It's less uh, physical than it looks, but it's, it's, there's something out there. So if we can bring people from materialism as a philosophy to a broad idea of Advaita without investment in the arguments deeply of, of Advaita, which gives you a sangskar for the Advaitan arguments, which can be problematic, then I would say Advaita is, is less, uh, is, is better. Um, and Mayavad is, and atheism is, is worse. Mm. But, but that doesn't, that that's only in a provisional sense. Then we have to, then we have to, once we get that far, then we have to start stepping on the head of, of, of Mayavada. Because unless you want to be devoured by Brahman and have no scope for, for Bhakti Rasa, if you want, okay. But we would think that that was a great shame. And if it's strictly Mayavada and they offend Bhakti, see, that's the other thing about Mayavada. Mayavada, unto itself as a philosophy, is offensive to Bhakti. So that's problematic. That's another way of looking at it. Hmm. Atheists, I guess they're offensive to Bhakti too. <laughs> Modern atheists, but the Maya bodies are also. So you don't want to get locked into that and offend Bhakti. Then, uh, then you won't even get Mukti. Anyway, so it's a good question. Interesting discussion. Anything else? All right, we'll stop there. Shishi, Rajagopal, Gijai. Gorbak the Brinda Kijai.
गोल प्रेम नंदी हरिभा